Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. One, two, three, four. Welcome back to another episode of Greenland. Today I'm chatting with Joe Lewis. Joe, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. So, Joe, I know you have some pretty amazing credits, and we'll dig into a few of them. But off the top, I know Fleabag, Mozart in the Jungle, 100-Foot Wave, Transparent, some really big heavy hitters that have spanned the last decade plus now of streaming at sort of its peak premiere level of television. Again, we can go so many different ways with this opening question, but just curious how you navigated into that position, getting involved with that level of projects and perhaps some of the Amazon backdrop of it all, which I know is a pretty big piece of some of the the early days. Sure. Um, I'll try to give the answer in a a succinct way, but you know, the bottom line is, you know, I was at the right place and right time. I was uh, personally interested in technology and professionally working in television and had some experience. I'll describe that a line, but it was really, you know, understanding pattern recognition within entertainment and television history and sort of just being at the nexus of, of business and creativity. I mean, the the, the real short uh, version I'll try to tell is, you know, I started out, um, I started out, I was a, a, a temp at Comedy Central working for, uh, the, working for the head of the network, a woman named Lauren Correa, who's incredible and, you know, now a good friend and has been a mentor for a long time. But I started out as, as her one day temp and, through a, a fluke of events and circumstances and finding maybe the right job for me. I helped conceive of that show Tosh.0 eight or nine months into the job. And, you know, it wasn't the most popular idea internally, but it was really loud and vocal on getting it made. And I ultimately, Lauren gave me $5,000 to make it as a live stage show at the Comedy Central stage. Another longer story, but the, uh, the basic version is it ended up getting on the air. It, didn't cost that much compared to other programming. It did exceptionally well when it, from the time it came out. It ended up running something like 16 seasons and yeah. dozens of episodes a season. But it just, you know, I, I saw that you could make something that was not that expensive. That a lot of people could think it was just an okay idea. It can it could become a wild hit. So um, I was at Comedy Central for a number of years and I'd started to work on movies under that brand and was trying to get set up, set up, get stuff set up with Paramount under the Comedy Central film brand and led me to think I wanted to make movies full time. So after a number of years at Comedy Central, I went and took a job at Fox and um, I was working at the movie studio and, you know, just quickly, um, quickly realized that it felt a little bit like an old timey business. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, was there for a while. And, you know, something I've always done and always recommend is just read a lot about the business that you're in. I read a ton about media. I read a ton about the history of entertainment. And um, I was just trying to understand, you know, how things happen in the past and what's going on now. And one day I saw 
that uh, that pay TV rates had declined for 10 quarters in a row or something. And pay TV rates had never declined before. So this is around 2009 or so. I think I was at Fox. And yeah. um, I was also, I just like technology. And I think my... I'd gotten a TiVo and I was, um, I remember I was using what was called Amazon Unbox, was Amazon's original digital delivery program where you'd download a movie or TV show overnight and then you could watch it the next day. So I wasn't loving the movie business. I had helped come up with and execute this very inexpensive, very successful show. Um, I saw that you could watch high definition video for free over TiVo at the time. And I saw that pay TV rates were declining. So it became, you know, it's it's one of those things in uh, in an instant, the idea sort of came to me and you spend years you know, unpacking it, but I saw that you could make a show, that I had the power to select and help conceive sure. a show that would catch on with audiences. I saw that high definition programming was being streamed at home for free. And uh, I saw that cable TV was probably going to go away, or at least had the first inklings it would yep. go away. So yep. I went full on into that idea. And I just realized there might be a moment where, you know, I did some of the math and how much it would cost to stream stuff and how I could figure out how much it would, could cost to make something. And, you know, my idea was to start my own comedy television mm. network. And I basically I was trying to start, you know, an over the top Comedy Central in 2010. We were going to do half hour shows you know, very inexpensively um, yep. and really, you know, patterned off a show like Tosh.0, which was a, you know, a format that had uh, that had been around a bulletproof format and perfect. I don't want to call him up and coming because he was such a big talent at the time, but the perfect comedian at yeah. the right stage of their career at the right time. And I was going to make just try to do what I was doing as an exec at Comedy Central, but offer it for free to anyone, anyone in the world with ads. Uh, I partnered with someone I'd gone to USC with and we were it was the first time I got my uh, taste of trying to raise capital and trying to do so for a media business. But we were trying to raise a small amount of money to start my television channel. And at that time, um, separate from me, Amazon decided to get into television. I think Jeff Bezos had an idea that it would be a great offering for prime memberships. So you had Amazon um, deciding to get into TV. Um, they thought comedy was a better way in. It was less expensive. There was less competition and they decided to get into the comedy stream business. At the time I was trying to start a comedy streaming network. There could not have been many of us in the world doing it. And then um, truly through a ex-colleague of mine at Fox had a good friend who worked at Amazon and they passed on my resume and said, this guy's working on a similar problem. Met them in let's say late 2011, early 2012. And through just a normal set of job interviews, I ended up becoming the first person hired at Amazon to do television. And I was in LA and uh, it's a long story and a long way of saying how I was in the yeah. position to make Transparent and Mozart in the Jungle and how I ended up uh, running a television network uh, hey, not hey, long hey. after I started in television. It's it's an amazing, amazing arc. I'm curious of the, the sort of big edit projects that you had with Transparent and Mozart and Fleabag. Did you have any of those prior to Amazon? Like, did you? No, I there was nothing. Things together. Got it. No, there was nothing. No, I mean, the, the, the TV network I was starting was really 
um, you know, going to be a low budget comedy channel. We were gonna not gonna do anything scripted. I wouldn't call us premium. You know, yeah. I think we would have been very yeah. funny, but you know, it was not a very low budget comedy. And then when I got into Amazon, the resources were way different. The goals were way different. You know, uh, what we wanted to make, who we wanted to attract, how we were gonna make them was you know com completely rethought. How different was it coming from the 20th Century Fox you know, world and that old timey business, as you say, into Amazon, especially when it was brand, brand new in that business? I mean, I just, I, it was amazing. I mean, I, you know, I still remember my first day at Amazon, I started in Seattle, I, like, a, you know, the employee orientation. And they had, they asked if it was okay if someone could follow me around with a stopwatch at every part of the orientation, getting my badge, filling out whatever forms I filled out, sitting through a video. And with the goal of measuring themselves and trying to improve the performance of the orientation. I mean, it was, you know, it was seconds after I started the job and you just, I just you felt realized. like I was at a company. Yeah, it was at a company that was going to do well or win. That was just really smart and driven. And, um, and it was great. I mean, you know, it's, it was also daunting and, you know, you're, you're, you're truly, a you know, Having a blank slate and no money to spend leaves you with yeah. a lot less choices than having a blank slate and a significant amount of, amount of money to spend. And you make a lot more mistakes, you learn a lot more things, and you have more chances to get lucky, which is what happens when a you know filmmaker like Joey Soloway in a script like Transparent comes in. And same with Mozart. But um, can you can you go back uh, then for a second onto onto Transparent? I'd love to go through how that came in. What was the what was the context? What was the the lead time from it coming into, obviously it airing and becoming such a, a hit? Sure, it's about eleven years ago, so I'm off by a little bit on any of the dates. Forgive me. Yeah, but um, Joey Soloway, um, their first movie called Afternoon Delight, which I'll plug and recommend, was just at Sundance, and they had one Best Director and their agent sent around the movie, and I think said if you like this, there's a a script by the creator that you should read. I love the movie um, and the script was transparent and it wasn't the exact script that we shot, but it was pretty close, um, you know, with maybe only one significant difference, but came in one day and met with Joey in our office in the Sherman Oaks Galleria above the El Torito. And they told us about the show. We had read the script and was just blown away. We made um I don't remember the exact deal, but we made, you know, a very favorable deal that probably no one else would have given to, yep. you know, gain their trust. And they let us make it. We were lucky. And um, I think everyone involved was lucky to find each other and get to make that show at, at that time. And such an incredible pilot and first season and beyond. Was there support for it right out of the gate? You know, as, as it came in and you know, obviously the, the Sundance film coming off the heels of that perhaps had some level of momentum, but was it was it obvious to multiple people to, to chase that? There were no huge internal obstacles. We also didn't have a lot of oversight at that point. You know, we were just such a, a small group and we were making a pilot. So, you know, relative to other projects at Amazon, although, you know, it was public facing. So relatively, you know, small investment. Um, we liked the script, uh, liked Joey, liked everything about the ideas for things to yeah. come. And, you know, I think the biggest question came, you know, when we, when we aired it, you know, I think we talked about this back then, but it wasn't the most, didn't get the most, you know, at the time 
Amazon was airing its pilot pilots publicly and looking at, you know, metrics yeah. around them and, and public feedback to try to figure out what to make. And, you know, I'll say, uh, I think we talked about it then, you know, it was not the most viewed pilot. We, Mozart in the Jungle, we also made that time and there was a, a third pilot too. Um, and so it, what it did get was just incredible reviews. You know, I remember yeah. headlines like, you know, the best pilot on TV is on Amazon. And so it was not well viewed. The only, the biggest question that came up is when we went into the green light meeting for it, you know, even though it wasn't, it wasn't well reviewed, it was undeniably a great show. And, you know, there was a question about would it get picked up, but, you know, to Bezos's credit, you know, the, the, um, you know, he started that meeting essentially picking up the show based on its quality. And again, that's the other part I just, loved about Amazon at that time. You know, I felt like we had really strict rules that we're all open to talking about and um, just coming up with the best solution. So yeah, that was yeah. the beginning and then made the show in a traditional, but I mean, unconventional way. And um, yeah, I'm just so proud of that that first season. Did, did that momentum, I mean, I, at least always in my experience, momentum begets momentum in this business. Did you find that to be obviously the case at such a huge scale now with all these resources with Amazon behind you and someone like Bezos championing quality and wanting it to be out there as a flag in the ground? Did that lead directly into something like Fleabag coming together? I know you and I have had this chat in the past, but for those listening, it's, it's such an awesome story. And that, that show as well was such a zeitgeisty changing of the momentum type type show. Yeah, I mean, it was part of our flywheel there and, you know, and a hugely important early part that made the flywheel spin a lot faster. Um, you know, winning the Golden Globe with that show, you saw viewership spike up. And then, you know, say Mozart in the Jungle, you mentioned earlier, the other pilot, we, we greenlit alongside Transparent, then won the Golden Globe the next year. And you see both viewership spikes and you you saw, um, you saw, something signaling that one wasn't a fluke that there was that there were we were trying to do things that were quality and different and you know at the time that those came out you know the only show i i really can remember pointing to was larry sanders that would, was the kind of show that we wanted to do that had a world that was serialized storytelling and with serialized storytelling you tend to need things that have a little more drama or reality to them you know it's just hard to get people to to invest in incredibly long stories unless there's something you know, something more than than surface level there. And I, there weren't a lot of things that we could point to. So, you know, I think discovering that serialized storytelling works, that it would be, that you could penetrate culture and it would be more um, compelling as a series, I think, you know, and just having it work on Transparent helped us, you know, lean into doing that a lot more. There's probably another, you know, uh, some alternate history where we made standalone one-off episodes for a while. Yeah. You know, I, I don't want to ignore that, you know, there were there was House of Cards and Lilyhammer and other things being made in the market that were embracing it. But, you know, I don't think it was um, it seems obvious now and it, it was more controversial than to do things that were super serialized and, yeah. um, you know, risky subjects. Can you talk a little bit about Phoebe Waller-Bridge and obviously just such an amazing, amazing performer, crazy, unique voice. Someone once said to me the best pieces of art when you think back and reflect on them, they can only possibly be told by one specific artist at one specific moment. And that show and that yeah, that experience, I remember seeing the first episode, like you knew you had seen something that only one person's voice could possibly give you that experience from. Just curious. And I know, again, we, we've sidebarred on this a little bit, but for those that yeah. haven't been privy to our conversations, go as, as wide or as deep as, as you want to, because I think this is such a fun one about how it got greenlit, how small it was early days, and then the 
a groundswell that built around that that project? Uh, sure. Um, you know, I mean, maybe things that you might, you know, not know or, you know, might not be obvious as, you know, sure it's been talked about publicly since, but there was not a lot of competition for the show. So it's nice, you know, to hear that the pilot, the first episode is great and, you know, is so obviously speaks to greatness to come. But, you know, there was an original pilot that the BBC spent a little bit of money on that everyone saw and everybody passed on my personal, you know, connection to it or our story, you know. We had the pilot, we were, I was meeting with my comedy team at the time. I can remember the conference room in Amazon. We were waiting for some people to get there to start. So we just said, let's put it on this show and let's just watch it till they get here or, or till we don't want to watch it anymore and can pass on it. Obviously we ended up watching the whole show, loved it. Then we got on the phone and had a normal, you know, what's going to happen. Tell me about the show. Tell me, you know, meet the person and you know, Phoebe was just incredible from the start. And it's just what you want to get out of every creator, someone that has a strong point of view and a, knows what they're writing and knows why they're writing it and has a good mm -hmm. sense of the story. And, um, you know, I think the thing to know with that show is, you know, not only is Phoebe an incredible writer, an incredible actor, but I think, you know, what you can't see on screen is... Um, you know, the temperament that leads to a show like that, which is like a relentlessness and a want and a drive to just keep going over it. You know, some people don't need to be told it's time to do a new pass. You know, the, a lot of the best, the very best creators and filmmakers I work with have this exact, um, not uniformly, but almost uniformly, this exact skill of just going over it over and over and over again. I think you can watch something like Fleabag, mm. but, you know, maybe it feels like, you know, inspiration struck and that show was 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 written down but that show was written through draft after draft you know pushed along by phoebe more than anybody else and, and incredible other producers on the show and jack and harry williams and um lydia and sarah at two brothers and um there's just the cast themselves but you know it just yeah. goes back to you know a relentless leader with an incredibly tuned instrument and you just hope things get, you know, when you're doing drafts or cuts, you always want them to get, you know, it always feels like they can maybe at best get, you know, 30% better. And, you know, I look at season one to season two of Fleabag and, you know, maybe see something that even exceeded that, you know, through the energy of, you know, no one, but uh, the energy mainly of Phoebe. Almost entirely so, Phoebe. So, so, so curious on that. Obviously it ends at season three. feels like something that everyone wanted more of. Was it always known that it would end? Was it a contained upfront or was that a Phoebe decision? How did that come about? I mean, there was a chance that there wasn't even in a season two. You know, mm -hmm. Assuming, you know, a lot of your listeners know historically the British system has been set up differently than the American television system. The American television system, you're not allowed to start unless there's a number of options on you that will make it not your decision to continue. The British system historically has been totally different do shows one season at a time and if the creator wants to keep going they can do it if not they'll do another show so there was never anything you know promising another season of the show and um you know i remember um i remember when phoebe had and i you know the idea that uh, that opened it up and i think you know i don't I think what's also great is there wouldn't be a season three without an idea to open it up again or just a real reason for it to exist but i'm also a fan of the show um you know in addition to being a part but you know i wish there was a season three like everybody else but 
there is. I want it to be really, really good. Yes. Curious on on that show. You know, typically on here on Greenlit, we talk about how did something get made? Would it get made today? Would the barriers to getting it made be similar, different? Like someone yourself who's a student of the the film business, television business, the entertainment business at large, and the history of all of it. Does this show get made today? If it does, how? Like you said, maybe that relentlessness, you, you still find a way through and you can figure out how to get over the speed bumps, even if they're different bumps in 2023 versus 10 years ago, eight years ago, however long it was. But just curious how you see that in terms of the broader market. Does this get made today? If so, what's the path to doing so? I mean, it's just, it's so hard to say. I think the easy answer would be no, because, um, but maybe that's just the self-serving answer to, you know, the answer is I, I don't know. I think there's, listen, the original um, pilot that the BBC made was not incredibly expensive. So yes, I could see them or someone taking that roll of the dice for what that cost and what that project was. And then the question is like with that pilot, what it was, could I see someone else coming in? You know, I think um, maybe it wouldn't be a traditional distributor now. Maybe there's, you know, this is what a lot of the focus of my current company is. So maybe it is still a self-serving answer, but I think there might be other companies that come in and can pick up mm -hmm. what before right. might've been the American portion of it and help produce it independently or, you know, take some other part of the world and pay for that. And, you know, that was the goal. I mean, the thought puzzle when I started Amplify Pictures, my current company is, all right, so I've done this, you know, I've done this since Tosh.0 and I've had shows that have gone well and in that one or on Fleabag, you know, would, what would the, the difference be in the outcome if the resources were that of Amazon or resources that I had, you know, paid myself or raised. And, um, you know, so I, I would, I would, th I would hope that a show like Fleabag gets made today. I would hope that my company or a competitor would step in and pay the Delta and get that show made. So, you know, I don't know that, uh, that it would be made the same way, but I'd sure. like to, you know, believe something that good would be made. And frankly, I'd like to believe that my company would be the one to find it and do it again. So I love that. That's, yeah, well, that's it's, it's, a, it, it's, it's a good segue in Amplify and maybe a, a hundred foot wave in, in general. Um, again, for, for those listening, this is being recorded literally last night. It, it, season two premiered of a hundred foot wave. Is that right, Joe? Yes. And for anyone who's uh, listening day and day, we're the lead into succession for the next six weeks, which I don't know what that means in terms of viewing anymore, but it sounds great to say out loud. And I'm excited <laughs> to be next to it. And so talk a little bit about that show. I know I, I was obsessed with season one. I've not Succession? watched it. Let's talk about it. I cannot <laughs> believe Logan was killed three episodes in. I know. I know. Ru it ruining, was... ruining it for everyone. Sorry, don't. They'll be. We'll, I'll, I'll record a spoiler for the start of this, but really, really, really enjoyed it. Okay, sorry. We can talk about Hundred Foot Wave. It's all good. It's all good. I mean, Hundred Foot Wave is so unbelievably unique, and it's also so different than the other things you had done. At least that, obviously, the, the big sort of comedies and the big splashy things like Transparent and Fleabag that have such a you know, different life than something like Hundred Foot Wave. But Hundred Foot Wave is just an amazing, amazing. Again, like you said exploration into finding the next really amazing thing instead of it just having to be derivative off of some model that just because it worked before it's going to work again this feels totally different um, and how yes nice. how it came about i'd love to hear similarly how did this one manifest sure so um you know i had a little bit of documentary in my background 
Um, I did Amazon's, like what I think are Amazon's first two doc series. One was called Long Strange Trip. It was an incredible doc series about the Grateful Dead from uh, the filmmaker Amir Barlev. And the other is a really good show, a small show called The New Yorker Presents. Both of those are still on Amazon now. People should check out. Um, New Yorker Presents a bunch of yeah, incredible documentary filmmakers taking on stories from The New Yorker. We've done a little bit of a documentary. Um, and like I said, I was working up this thought puzzle. Could I just find and finance the next flea bag myself? And I was raising money to try to do that, start an independent scripted television studio. Then, you know, one of those fluke lucky things happen. So uh, my wife's second cousin, Nicole McNamara, is married to the biggest, one of the biggest big wave surfers in the world, Garrett McNamara. Now Garrett and Nicole are the leads of 100 Foot Wave. I hadn't met them before. They lived in Hawaii. Um, I, I had, hadn't spoken to them, but they reached out to my wife and asked me if they could ask me for some advice. And they had an idea about a project that was a little bit different than what the show became, but they wanted to talk and um, met up with them, gave them some advice, and they asked me if I wanted to produce it. So at that point, I was trying to do scripted television mm -hmm. shows on my own, but I met them, you know, and Garrett, both of them. But Garrett is so compelling. Yeah. Um, and pretty, pretty, story... pretty intense dude. Pretty intense. Again, back to your comment around Relentless. I mean, that dude is like the definition of Relentless. Yeah, but he's also funny and charismatic. And, you know, I, you know, I think as intense as he is, he's, you know, just equally fun. Um, and, you know, you're just, um, it's what you're always looking for. You know, now I get articulated because I've done a lot more documentary since, but just a great character in a great world. And Chris Smith was someone I'd known for years through a mutual friend. And, you know, we would ski at Sundance together because the mountains were, were open and with our mutual friend. And, but we hadn't worked together. And just, I was a huge fan of his, truly from the beginning of his career. Um, American Movie is just one of those projects that, you know, had a big impact on me. And reached out to him about the idea and, and asked if he was interested in surfing. And he said, definitely not. And luckily, he uh, thought it was interesting enough, though, he agreed to meet with the with Garrett and Nicole over Zoom. And and so we got together, we Zoomed with them. And then two weeks later, we started shooting the show. We just sent an operator, <laughs> camera operator out. And I don't think we've stopped shooting the show almost for four years since. And now season two, like you said, just premiered the other night. Um, you know, we've shooting all last winter too and the show just keeps going so it really just proved out this model we, uh, we made six episodes before um, we started working with HBO and licensed it to them and it just proved that you can make series on your own it can be a great win for the distributors um, you know the show won an Emmy for best cinematography we were up for best show really it's really just a great inspiring show with incredible high level filmmaking from one of the world's best filmmakers and, um, you know, it solved the problems that I was finding with producing, which was that it's incredibly slow. You don't have yeah. a lot of agency. And uh, even if your show does well or wins all the awards, there's no bonus. So, you know, by taking a lot of risk at the beginning and just going to make the show, um, you know, it turns all those things on on their head. So, uh, yeah, that was 100 foot, foot wave and continues to go on and very 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 it? happy with season two and hope everyone yeah. gets a chance to watch it can, can you take it further joe i mean that model and that sort of let's say entrepreneurial reinventing approach to making a series can you or are you taking that and applying it elsewhere is that one of the, the cornerstones i believe it is of, of amplify in general and how you think about no pun intended the sort of next wave of, of building a, a a meaningful entertainment company that can produce its own own content 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the big thing, Amplify was born out of, you know, trying to solve those problems, of, not just for producing, but, you know, any creative person. How, do, how can you make it move quickly? How can you be incentivized when it does well? And how can you have agency? You know, how can you get to explore the ideas in your head with um, with yourself and your partners as the guide? And um, so it worked out 100 Foot Wave was the test. Since then, you know, we've continued to finance a number of shows. The company has grown, so I have more help and more resources. And there's a number of documentaries that we're financing behind it. And yeah, it's just a, it's a really, it's a really great model. We're, um, we are, you know, the next big thing for us is proving that it works on the scripted side. And this is a project we're hoping to shoot later this year um, abroad that will fit into this. And again, I just think there's in movies historically, or at least since, so the 70s there's been an escape route for creative energy you could make an independent film there's just not the same opportunity in television and yeah. right now in tv you it's tangible the amount of creative energy that's bottled up and looking for somewhere else to go and you know i have no doubt that the biggest shows of all time maybe the best shows of all time never made it out of development never no one ever bought them and if they did they didn't make them and if they didn't make the pilot they didn't order them to series yeah and i think you know those those are the opportunities you know we're looking for we're looking for those not just but not just shows that aren't bound i think this is the, the best model for anyone who's making television because it aligns you with the success of the show you as the creator so um yeah it's a model that we're you know heavily invested in and putting all of our time and resources in and, you know truly think it's great for every part of the television business you know for distributors or streamers we get to say you don't have to worry about the budget or the schedule or if it's good we'll show it to you first we'll be responsible right. for the overage and this only works if you can't if you if we can make a show for less than the cost that it would make you to do it for creators we move quickly and um ourselves we just get to make tv which is what we love i appreciate it i know we're we're tight on time and i want to be respectful of that i usually end with with the question which is if you could tell your your younger producer or filmmaker self anything uh, knowing what you know now and knowing the business the way you do now what what does that look like i mean i would tell myself to read as educate myself as much as possible to read uh to read everything you can on the business that you want to be in and you know i didn't figure this out till i was in my like say mid to late 20s you know that you can really um you can figure out what to do I, you know no one teaches you i went to usc film school one of the best film schools in the country never, yeah. no one ever taught me much about the film business you know, yeah, right. how, how, do, how do the gears actually touch? How do you get things actually made? How does the business actually work? Where is the business going? You know, I, I would have told myself the same thing, probably what I tell to, you know, people who ask me advice now is just, you know, you gotta, you gotta get into the next big area first. And the way to figure yeah. out what that is, is to read a lot about what's going on now and to read a lot about what happened before. And then you have to go full in and really just learn how to like listen to your internal conviction about ideas. I want to tell myself to like be less, you know, anxious about it and just chill and it'll be fine. But then I always wonder if like that's what made me, you know, get the other stuff done. So I would not tell myself to chill out, but I should. Yeah. And a, uh, I would tell myself to. 
Yeah, no, not to cut you off on that point. There's an amazing quote, which is if, if you're not worrying, you need to be worried. And if you're worried, you don't need to be worrying because ultimately those personality types that take care of themselves one way or the other. So I'm a huge, huge believer in that. It's an unfortunate thing to bear on your back all the time, especially when you're trying to get things made and build companies and work with creatives and work in a very challenging, changing, evolving business. But I just love that idea. If, if, you, if, you, if you are worried, you don't need to be. So you, you've got to figure it out. You're, you're worrying about yeah. it nonstop enough. The trick is always to know when it's going to be. It's you have to trick yourself into knowing it's when there are real problems, knowing that they'll be fine. Right. And but also just feeling, you know, I feel like the future's constantly, you know, happening, and you're just trying to, you know, not let it happen to you and be a part of it. And you know, it's why I get so excited, you know, about seeing things about AI and new tools. And I don't know how they'll be used, and there's scary things about them, but just it seems, you know, when the future becomes tangible. That's when, you know, ideas start firing and, you know, I guarantee, I mean, if I was starting now, you know, I would tell myself to go into global TV. I just, I would love to move to broad when I was young. And I think it's uh, going to be the one of the next big things. Um, so yeah, somehow you got to worry, but just, uh, just enough to motivate yourself and not so much that yeah. you don't solve, <laughs> know that, know that most problems get solved. You hire right. to write and work with great people. Thank you again, dude. Really appreciate you joining yeah, thanks for having me on. We'll talk soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.